Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we pick up the story of Christopher Arkwright as he mounts an expedition into the bayou under the auspices of the Explorers Society. In part one, Arkwright's mercenaries slaughtered the gremlins of Stonehill Village due to a quarrel over some whiskey. On today's episode, the gremlins are out for revenge. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of the slaughter at Stonehill. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Ulex's Hog Management Services. There ain't no finer swine herd in all the bayou than Ulex Turner. You can count on him to herd, feed, breed and slaughter any kind of hog. If you want swamp smarts and hog know-how, contact Ulex today. Ulix had his foot up on the railing of his front porch as he leaned back in a rocking chair that his grandpappy had carved himself. His eyes were closed, but he listened intently to Gracie as she ate enough food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He smiled. Damn, I ain't never seen a rid like that. What you putting in that slop? Bert nearly shouted. Slop, Ulix replied. Bert tried to think of how he could possibly repay Ulix. So as not to startle her, he quietly walked up behind Gracie and opened up one of the satchels on her hip, removing a jug and two small cups. Normally when Bert had an idea, it was usually a bad one, but this time he might have been onto something. Big stumps, what old Brewy calls this one. It'll grow some hair on that lip of yours, Bert laughed through a wide smile and poured him each a glass. The stuff did have a bit of a reputation was a rare thing to get a taste of the brewmaster's finest. Ulix opened one eye, but just barely. All right, he replied. Bottoms up. Bottoms up, Bert echoed. He took a long swallow and set his mug down with a sigh. He'd always liked Ulix's toasts. Some folks liked the sound of their own voices and were inclined to waffle on, mistaking the silence around them for encouragement rather than just because a whole lot of mouths were hanging open in anticipation of taking a drink. But not Ulix. Straight to the point he was. The lame old gremlin reached over and poured another tot into Bert's mug. Big stump, you said. Big old stump. Bert gulped it down, letting the fiery alcohol hit his stomach, then rebound and punch him right in the brain. He would have formed a complimentary remark were it not for the instant potency of the brew and finding himself, for the moment at least, stumped. So how are things here? Bert finally asked, once he'd lowered himself into a comfy-looking padded chair on the stoop. It's fine, Ulick said, his eyes closed again. I hear you. 
Up north is the same as always, I reckon, Bert replied. A lot of folks is happy about young Lenny putting on the big hat. The others not so much. You looks grunted in assent. It's a rider. Ain't nobody around my way seen her for weeks, Bert said. You don't reckon she's up and split, do you? Nah. Ulick shook his head. She'll come round. Sure hope so, Bert said, helping himself to another shot of Big Stump. A gigantic pink snout appeared over the railing and began to root excitedly, the soft jangle of pots and pans accompanying the much louder quaffing. Don't mind, do you? Bert asked, indicating his huge hog gracefully guzzling down the high-end shine. Ulick chuckled, stroking his thick beard. Couldn't refuse that grand old lady nothing. She always was my favorite. Sharp teeth nipped gently at the fingers of his other hand in mild protest. Favorite hog, Willis corrected himself looking down, in the sapphire eyes of Penelope, his faithful dog. Everybody knows you're my best girl. He gave her scratches behind the ears and she settled, content that all was right with the world again. Actually, Bert continued, Talking as a rider, but he never got to finish. There was another sound in the distance. Ulick's frown sat up. Great, more company. This you're doing, he scowled. I don't reckon no, Bert replied, just as dumbfounded as ever. Mr. Turner, Mr. Turner. Multiple piping voices screeched from afar, continuing to repeat the same thing over and over again until they got close enough. A gaggle of young and out-of-breath gremlins ran through the farm covered in mud. Mr. Turner! Ulix waved his hands at the squawking young ones, wincing. Easy, easy, I'm old, but I ain't deaf. Mr. Turner, you gotta come, the eldest of the group insisted, all wide eyes. Settle down and tell them what's going on, the old hogmaster grumbled. Bill Roy better not have any more cases of swine fever on his ranch. I told him to separate. Sorry for interrupting, but it isn't Billy Roy, but it in another. Something about the genuinely stunned faces of the little ones began to fill Bert with unease, and Ulick's expression showed he was feeling the same. Come on, little one, Bert said. Tell it straight. One of the smallest ones began to cry, and the others looked like they were soon to follow suit. Stone Hill, the biggest one said. It's Stone Hill. Bert knew the village. He'd been there once a couple years back. Great big stone house for their boss. What was that old coot's name again? Lemon something? Ulix had leaned forward in his chair, his expression grim and attentive. Tell it all, boy. What happened? They're dead, the young one blurted, began to sob. They're all dead. Ulix closed his eyes and shook his head. I've been telling him, gotta fix them leaks. Those stills ain't gonna fix themselves. One little mistake and suddenly boom, up in flames. With that much shine, the whole damn place'll... Nah, Mr. Turner, ain't no exploding. One of the quiet gremlins chimed in. City folk came marching in, shooting up the place. Ulysses' expression was a sour grimace. He mumbled something under his breath akin to, Can't have that, and not round here they're not. The old gremlin turned his head toward the front door behind him then spat on the floor. Bert, make yourself useful and go fetch my bow. We's going hunting. Well, Bert asked, what do you think? 
It had taken them nearly two days to reach Stone Hill, even with Ulick's extensive knowledge of the bayou. They'd used high paths and secret ways where the vegetation was thinner to make as much time as possible, and he cursed his bad leg every step of the way for slowing him down. The village was long deserted by the time they arrived. Many of the bodies were already gone. Ulix could see the drag marks through the earth and heavy wet prints where Enterprise and Silurids had risen out of the swamp to snatch an easy meal. Enough for left to tell the tale, though. He found a storm of bare gremlin prints in the earth, deep and stark like they were running and leaping, almost obscured in the maelstrom with heavy boot prints, city folk. He found eight sets of them leading out of the village heading north, back towards Malifaux. Spent brass casings were everywhere. Clockwork rifles, most likely. Large caliber. Not the sort of thing carried by a traveling merchant or bandits. Soldiers, perhaps. Or mercenaries. Six big mounds of earth lay in a row at the west end of the village. So the fight wasn't all one-sided. They buried their dead but left theirs to rot, Ulix mused. It couldn't have happened much more than a few days ago, and the bodies that remained still told the tale of how they died. Bullets, rifle butts, boots. There were other tracks, too, less obvious in origin. Three dimples in a triangular arrangement, here and there and everywhere, all around the entrance to the manor, like someone had set down a whole mess of bar stools. Ulix was scratching his head with that one until Bert found ripped-up pieces of heavy wax paper thrown into the swamp. When the worst of the mud was wiped off, he found fragmented monochrome images of the manor and the occasional frowning gremlin face. Ulix didn't have much familiarity with photography, but he once seen the old crookshank get his image taken by a snake oil salesman with a wagon full of trinkets. A box draped in black cloth on three legs. The tracks made a lot more sense now, but why would a bunch of lousy humans be taking images of the manor? He threw the shredded photographs away. He would ask them just as soon as he caught them. Pursing his lips, he whistled. Boars surged out of the undergrowth. Huge ones. Six or seven hundred pounds apiece, heavily muscled and covered in coarse hair, with curved tusks as long as a gremlin's arm. They formed a ring around the old hog wrangler dwarfing him. Pigs loved Ulix. They would grunt and squeal in his presence, roll on their backs at the first sign of a possible scratch, gratefully accept the bits of carrot and onion he sometimes found in his pockets, and generally were very content in his presence. These bruises, however, barely made a sound other than heavy, agitated snuffing from their flat snouts. They could smell the old violence in the air, they could sense Ulix's dark and vengeful mood. They knew a battle was coming. They were killers and they were eager for what came next. Eight of them, Ulix said to Bert. Went north. Maybe too far past. Bert looked at the sky and started to count his fingers. Big lead. They're moving slow, got wounded, and way down. They took something from here, something heavy, Ulix spat. We'll catch him. Yeah, Burke nodded. And when we does, he grinned wildly. Ulix looked around at the broken drain stills and the splintered shacks. 
He saw a glass big hat riddled with bullet holes, twisted bodies beaten into the dirt, a gremlin child, her face covered with long blue-black hair. Wordlessly, he clambered onto the largest of the boars, gripping his bristles tightly with both fists, turned his head north, and dug his bad leg into its flank. Barty, a mercenary who rarely ever left Ridley, hated Skeeters. This damn swamp was full of them. Everywhere you turned, there was a cloud of Skeeters, tipping past your ear and making you jump. They were sneaky, too. More than once, he looked down and found one fat with his blood, clinging to his arm. Come out of nowhere and feasting on him without so much as excuse me. If that wasn't bad enough, the bats itched. Lordy how they itched. He and the other men were all covered in them. But sometimes Barty wondered if somebody would find them years later. Just dried up old husks with all the blood sucked out. Skeetered out. He paused to get his breath. At least he didn't have to deal with the giant ones he heard rumors about. They'd been slogging all morning through knee-deep swamp water, and his legs and back ached from the exertion and the 35-pound pack on his back. Just in the last hour, they'd found some marshy ground to walk on. It was so overgrown with dense, scratchy bushes, trailing vines and reeds, that he wasn't sure if he'd prefer to be back in the swamp after all. The others continued on, heads down puffing like the beasts they'd been reduced to on this excursion. Barty lost track of how many days it had been since they left that gremlin village. It felt like years now. Every day was the same. A constant slog in the line with the back breaking load across his shoulders, stopping every few hours for a mouthful of brackish water laced with shine and a bite of cold pork, then on again. They marched until it was too dark to see, and spent a fitful night trying to sleep in the oppressive heat, with ominous croaking and splashes all around. It was almost a relief to be shaken up for a turn on guard duty. When the first threads of orange sunlight came over the canopy, it was time to lift that detested pack and start all over again. It had been Barbara's idea to take the shine, over his lordship's protests, of course, at least until the Merc leader told him why. Their water rations wouldn't last the trip home, even with their reduced numbers, and they were going to have to start drinking swamp water. However, the shine was more or less neat alcohol. A mix of one pie shine four-part swamp water made an unpalatable but mostly safe alternative to fresh water, as the alcohol killed off pretty much everything swimming around in it. Not completely everything, he thought, as his stomach bubbled and fizzed. He'd caught a dose of something out here, but whether it was from the insect bites, the stagnant water, or the pork that was already on the turn, he couldn't say. It was time to find a quiet spot to relieve his aching guts. He slid off his pack, propped his rifle against it, and pushed a little deeper into the undergrowth. The others were already out of sight, but he could still hear them crashing and blundering up ahead. It wouldn't take him long to catch up. He'd barely got his hands on his belt when he felt his ankles clench tight. Ever fearful of snakes, he staggered back and found that knotted vines had been tied around both ankles, with a pair of green hands vanishing into the vegetation behind him. A lot of observations crashed into one another over the next second or so, like a freight train whose engine had braked too hard. Two vines were tied to him, one to each ankle. 
They sneaked off a ways into the undergrowth. They were tied to pigs. Two real big pigs. There was a gremlin standing between them. A mean-looking old feather with a stumpy leg and a beard. He had a stormy expression on his face. Get up, he said, and slapped the rumps of both pigs hard. Birdie was yanked off his feet as the powerful animals launched forward and the vine snapped taut. By the time he'd drawn breaths to scream, he was racing through the reeds and bushes at breakneck speed, like the world's worst designed chariot. Shrieking didn't seem to help, but he did it anyway because he was terrified, and because being wrenched through the thorns and vines at the pace of a galloping horse hurt. Every time he tried to crane forward to get at the vines around his ankles, he got bonked on the head by something or jerked to one side or the other. The boys were running roughly parallel, snorting as their powerful limbs churned, and it seemed to Birdie that they were looking for something specific. They kept angling on one side or the other as they charged forward, and then they found it. A big, fat weirdwood tree, maybe six feet in diameter and bent over under its own weight. The hogs made straight for it, accelerating until Birdie was barely touching the ground at all, skipping along like a flat stone over a pond. Faster and faster they ran, charging straight at the tree, and then they shot right past it, one on either side. The mercenaries found what remained of Birdie a few minutes later. Barbara heard the crashing undergrowth and shrieking, and thought that perhaps a Silurid had grabbed the hindmost man. But the commotion traveled much too fast, even for a hungry reptile. One loud meat thud and an anguished scream, then silence. It hadn't made much sense until they found the body. Birdie was accordion against the tree, his torso compacted and crushed into the stout wood. He clearly hit it at considerable speed. While there was a lot of blood, there was no sign of his legs. The Silurid theory was still an option until they ventured a short way further up the trail, made by whatever had crashed through the bushes and found two severed legs, each one tied to a length of sturdy vine. From the marks in the blood trail, it looked like they'd been dragging him until the tree got in the way. Barty had stopped, but his legs kept going for another twenty yards or so. Not a good way to check out. Some sort of animal, asked Pillory, the merc responsible for the ethervox, looking sickened. Berber crouched to examine one of the legs and its thick bundle of securely tied vine knots. Doubt it. What's going on, demanded Arkwright. He glanced at the dead mercenary and was now studiously avoiding the sight, mopping his freshly shaved upper lip with a silk kerchief. We lost Barty, Barber said. Looks like we've got company. The mercenaries eyed the shivering green wall around them. The bayou had never seemed welcoming, but right now it felt positively hostile. We keep moving, Arkwright said, and double the watch tonight. You're the boss. Barber nodded for the men to get underway again, but before he stepped over Barty's remains, he slid his pistol from its holster and checked to make sure the rounds were still dry. He had a feeling he'd be needing it soon. It sounded a bit like the cracking of a whip. Someone had bent a long, supple branch back as far as it would go without splitting, and secured it with vine. That same someone had lashed about a dozen thin stakes along its length, each one whittled to a lethal point, 
between six and eight inches in length. This mysterious industrialist had then looped a second vine around another couple of stakes in the ground and stretched it taut across a narrow game trail through the undergrowth, attaching one end to the vine that held the coiled branch. By the time Barber had pushed his way to the front, the tripwire had already been stumbled over, the branch had lashed out, and five wooden spikes were buried deep in Selwyn's thighs. For a big man, he screamed like a girl. The mercenary leader clamped a hand over his mouth while the others clustered around, some to help, others through morbid fascination. What, what, what's this, blustered Arkwright, arriving at Barbara's elbow. Good Lord. Ambush, the mercenary leader stated the obvious. They've trapped the trail ahead of us. Two men held Selwyn as they drew the stakes out. He went down like a sack of potatoes and lay there, moaning while they bound him up. Can he walk? Arkwright asked. Doubt it, Barbara said. Even if his legs aren't broken, the muscles are all torn up. Perhaps, perhaps some sort of litter, the explorer muttered, looking at the tree limbs around them. Barber took hold of his arm and squeezed it. And who's going to carry it, he asked under his breath. You're fast running out of manpower, Professor. We're down to six able-bodied men, which includes you, by the way. we still got about three weeks of swamp in front of us, and four crates to lug, and zero boats. I'll let you do the math. Arkwright frowned in thought, stroking his clean-shaven jaw. Barbara had never understood the starchy custom of shaving with a razor every dawn, irrespective of location or situation. Every other man here had a beard. The explorer probably thought it was the mark of a gentleman. Barbara just saw a waste of drinking water. The ethervox, we can vox for help. There must be someone out there able to get a signal, Arkwright assured himself. Yes, we find help, and they can get us out of this mess. There's no way they'll pick up our signal through all this foliage, Barbara said. Besides, we're probably out of transmitter range. Arkwright was already moving, stepping over the growing Selwyn and taking hold of Pillory's shoulder. Break out the Vox, Mr. Pillory. We're going to call for more men. The mercenary glanced doubtfully at Barbara, but did as he was told and lowered his heavy pack to the ground. The canvas front was rolled up so that he could get at the control face inside, a half-dozen knobs and glass dials set in the wooden cabinet frame. The faint sputter and buzz from the speaker as he fiddled with the frequency gauges told Barbara everything he needed to know, and he walked away to leave the mercenary fruitlessly calling for aid. Arkwright was bouncing on the balls of his feet, hands behind his back. He looked pleased with himself as though he'd single-handedly saved them all. Not to worry, he said. I'm sure there's someone in the area that will step up to the challenge. We'll have soldiers and supplies in no time. Brought to us by airship. The rope from the skies will pluck us from this hell. No final rescue will be made this day. Mark my words, gentlemen. Selwyn's moans were turning into gurgles. Barbara looked down at the man and saw his face had gone gray and brown froth was leaking slowly from his mouth. He twitched once, went poker straight, and expired with a wet sigh. Guess we don't need to stretch her after all, he said. Poison, agreed Michaels, sniffing at one of the stakes. 
There was a quiet spell while that sank in, with only the rustling and burbling of the swamp and the eerie whistling of the vox for company. Finally, pillars switched the set off. Sorry, sir, nothing. I can't get a signal. Well, boys, Barbara said, I think I'm done with this job. How about you? There were murmurs of assent from the remaining mercenaries and a few grins. I beg your pardon, Arkwright interrupted. Strip down to the essentials. Water, food, ammunition. We'll cover a lot more ground not having to haul all that junk. The men started dropping their packs on the ground, tipping the contents out into the undergrowth. Carefully packed crates full of stone crocker were rolled into the marsh of water. Stop, stop at once, Sirkrat demanded. I have a contract. You are to provide transportation and protection throughout the entirety of this expedition. The entirety. Sorry, Professor, Berber said. Saving my neck is more important than your damned exhibition. You'll forfeit the remainder of your pay, the explorer warned. Can't spend it if I'm dead. Scoundrels, villains. Arkwright was incensed, his face puce. I'll see you all hanged for this. You'll have to find a way out of this swamp first, Berber said, lifting his much lighter pack to his shoulder and starting to follow the remaining four mercenaries. Pillory, bring the Vox. Might come in handy if we can find some high ground. Wait, you can't leave me here. Okay, Barber said over his shoulder, his voice dripping with sarcasm. I'll go get help. You wait here. They left him in a small clearing, surrounded by crates, pots, buckets, canvas tents, and an ornate oak box shaving kit. Mulex watched him go crouching in the shadows just beyond the edge of the clearing. They were alert now, he saw. Rifles off shoulders and pointed in their direction to travel. And they were checking where they put their feet. And snares and traps would be spotted. That was fine. There was more than one way to rustle a herd. Time for a more direct approach. Silently, Ulix vanished into the undergrowth. Barber never could have guessed what the source of the sound was in the distance, even if his life depended on it, which it did. The noise started very faintly, and so far off he took it for the wind picking up in the canopy. The clouds had been gathering for the last twenty minutes or so, and he was quietly hoping for the rain to recharge the canteens. The noise grew in volume, the hissing of vegetation becoming a crackling, and with it a low rumbling. A waterfall? Surely not. The land around here was too flat. Louder. Loud enough for the man in front to stop and turn with eyebrows raised. They didn't know what it was either. And it was still getting louder, even though they'd stopped moving. Whatever it was, it was coming their way. Steady, boys, Barbara said, drawing his revolver and checking the chambers for the tenth time that day. Looks like we're going to have company. The other mercenaries raised their rifles to their shoulders, settled their feet. Michaelson's style was solid enough. Pillory was fingering his rifle nervously, but Barber knew he'd stand his ground when the time came. Only Brunel looked flighty. If this was an attack, he might break. The rumbling and crashing was getting very loud. 
Something big was coming their way at speed. Wait until you got a target, Barbara said, drawing the hammer on his revolver and braced him with his left hand. Aim small, miss small. Clockwork rifles were trained on the thick foliage ahead. It was shivering now, perceptibly. Even pools of dark water around Barbara's feet were rippling. Whatever was coming, it was heavy. You try to think of an animal big enough to make such a din, but nothing came to mind. Almost everything in the bayou was an ambush predator. This headlong charge made no sense. And then it emerged, bursting from the undergrowth not twenty feet away. For a crazy half-second, Barbara thought Arkwright had sent an airship after all, a pink one. It launched itself into the air, an improbable event given the size of the creature and the comparative shortness of its legs, but airborne it became nevertheless. Perhaps only three or four feet off the ground, but the incredible, irresistible mass of the animal fired it forward like an especially fat cannonball. Time seemed to slow and stop as the mercenaries watched this absurd vision sail towards them. The creature retained something of a dainty and ladylike elegance during its brief flight, and then it came down on top of Michael's like a 1,000-pound hammer made of bacon. Barbara decided he had swamp fever. The biggest, fattest pig he'd ever seen had just fired out of the tree line and crushed one of his men to a bloody wafer. He had frying pan strapped to it. This had to be a hallucination. A smaller green hallucination with a wide grin and a waving mullet atop this mountain of pork swung something that looked like a miniature church organ into view. Screech come and get her and disappeared in a cloud of black powder. Stav's head disintegrated. One second he was staring at metallic tubes that curved every which way. The next his face was a fine red mist. Finally, Barbara's brain slipped in a gear. They were under attack. He aimed his revolver square between the massive hog's eyes and fired. The bullet spanged off the heavy iron part protecting its head and struck Pillar's backpack dead center. The ethervox flicked on, or was forcibly turned on, or was inexplicably about to explode. The rattle of static, screaming, screaming right in his ears. Screaming so loud he thought his teeth were going to shatter like glass. His brain rippled inside his skull. His vision doubled, tripled. Everything was white, everything was aflame. No thoughts could form in this maelstrom. He was trapped, stunned, pinned in the spotlight of sonic agony. The swamp was gone. His men were gone. He was gone. There was only the screaming. The sonic booms that poured from the ethervox like ripples of metal crashed into one another all at once. And then there wasn't. The sweet balm of comparative silence found him. And with it came the ambience of the bayou. The tender hiss of the leaves stirred by the breeze the slow burp of marsh gas. The Vox unit was silent now, other than intermittent pops and sparks finally burn out. Pillory was face down in the swamp, the blood from his ears forming a dark crimson halo, quite dead. Barbara had been ten feet away and almost bit through his tongue. That noise at point-blank range would have been unbearable. Even the gremlin bird had paused, staring agog from the back of his giant mount at the broken ethervox.
Hooey. That was louder than Lenny's lamentations, he exclaimed. Brunel's clockwork rifle lay just beyond the motionless pillory. No Brunel. Only the sound of someone crashing through the undergrowth. Coward. We've come for ye, mister, said another voice to his right. Come for what ye did to the good folks of Stone Hill. Burr was grateful for these few seconds respite, to let the ringing in his ears subside and his vision clear, to give him a chance. He still had his clockwork revolver, its comforting weight holding his arm down at his side. He turned slowly to spool the moment out further. Another gremlin, much older and kind of worn looking, and a bent top hat like a stubbed cigarillo butt. Had a game leg, too. He was holding a notch bow and arrow, and he was flanked on both sides with huge boars. Not bizarre pink dirigibles like the pig that had crushed Michael's. These were powerful, sleek, capable-looking animals. Don't suppose I get a say in this, he ventured. The old gremlin shook his head slowly. Burba knew the gremlin had come from the village that left behind, had seen the dead infants, and knew he had no chance of survival. He wasn't really sorry for it. Wasn't really sorry for anything he'd done for money in his life. Or for sport. It seemed this was his end, here in this swamp, thanks to some blathering idiot who thought it'd be a good idea to take a trip down into the swamp to find some buried ruin. But at least he could take this old raccoon with him. The gremlin must have seen it in his eyes. His bow came up quick, but Barbara was quicker. He aimed his revolver for the chest, just like that gremlin he shot back in the village, and pulled the trigger. The blue flash, a snarl, and his revolver was gone, hand included. He stared at it stupidly, and at the big dog crunching on his severed digits like a grizzly chew toy. Oh, he said, shocked and dumbfounded, unable to find the words, emotions, or nerve endings. The dog swallowed his fingers and looked up at him with the most astonishing blue eyes. They looked angry. Finding the leader wasn't difficult, especially since he was trying to drag a fair-sized creep behind him through a swamp. Willux hadn't bothered to go after the man who ran, not after he heard the huge splash. He'd been living in the bayou long enough to know what a silurid attack sounded like. The leader didn't look much like a fighter. His face was too smooth, his clothing too fancy, and from the blood and blisters on his hands, too used to having others do the heavy lifting for him. Y'all go ahead and put that creek down, he said, as his boars trotted into a rough circle around him. Whatever's in there don't belong to you. The man rose to his full height, straightened his tunic and his hat with an air of defiance. Brave, at least, or stupid. My name is Christopher St. John Arkwright, he said. I am an academic, sir, on assignment by the Explorer Society. And I tell you now that you will rue the day you hampered my work. I have powerful friends. Me too, remarked Ulix as Penelope loped into the clearing, licking blood from her chops. She didn't often get riled up, but she'd taken that mercenary's attempt to shoot him rather personal, 
He begged for an arrow before she was done. Arkwright blanched visibly at the blood dripping from Penelope's jaws, but he wasn't quite finished being pompous yet. I don't expect your kind to understand the importance of my work, but trust me when I tell you that it is critical, critical, I say, that I return to Malifaux with this exhibit. Hoo-wee, Bert began to laugh, jangling atop the pots and pans attached to Gracie. I call dibs on them fancy pants. Ulix gave him the side eye. Make yourself useful and go pick up that fandangled screaming contraption over yonder. Ulix snapped, then turned to Fancy Pants Arkwright and the creep beside him. That what this was all about? Some box you found in that there ruin? The, this is possibly the greatest find of my career, sir, Arkwright stressed, pointing at the mud-smeared creep. What evil happened there was not my fault. I wasn't even there. If you must, blame the band of mercenaries I hired to assist me in this endeavor. Those fools said it was in self-defense. Please don't kill me. Yooks' blood began to boil. In the Litlands, he snapped. They was self-defense, too. For the first time, Fancy Pants seemed at a loss for words. Some thirty-odd folks dead. All good and kind. Gone so y'all could have your box. Bunch of Litlands. Barely seen a summer or two. Gone. So y'all could have your box. I... It wasn't, I didn't mean. Know this, mister, Ulick said. Before you die, know this. I'm taking that box and everything else you stole. Taking it all back to Stonehill where it belongs. Because I want you to know. All that effort, all that slogging through the swamp, all that pain and suffering was for nothing. Nothing. You can't kill me, exclaimed Fancy Pants Arkwright. Shrill now he realized his number was up. I'm a protected member of the Explorer Society. He lied through his prominent front teeth. You can't kill me. Oh, I ain't gonna kill you, Ulick said. They are. The massive boars moved forward on cue, tusk jaws slavering. He watched for a while, but once the screeching had turned to crunching and ripping, he turned away to begin gathering up the scattered detritus of the failed expedition. You really want to lug that thing all the way back, Bert asked, nodding at the ethervox strapped to Gracie's side. You ever hear a hungry pig in the morning? About time we weaponized that, I reckon. You've got some crazy ideas there, Ulix. I'll give you that. In the end, they took almost everything. Not just the stolen items from the temple, and that strange shadowy object that made Penelope growl and gave Ulix a bad vibe, but the canvas tents and the rope the empty canteens and the hardtack, even the spare socks. You never knew what would come in handy on the road home. In a dark, indistinct room, two figures sat at a plain table. A wide-shouldered man in a finely tailored suit leaned forward and dragged the tip of a quill across Christopher Arkwright from a list of other scratched-off names. Three cents, three lost, he said his voice echoing in the stillness. Though somehow, this one did get the furthest. Shall we seek a fourth? That won't be necessary, the elderly woman with sharp features replied. There are only so many idiots we can throw into a pit before the pit is filled. She unfolded her arms and began tapping her nails out on the wooden table. 
You know, this will require a delicate touch. It's how we should have addressed this artifact in the first place. You know what to do. I do, he agreed, then stood up and promptly walked out of the room, leaving the woman alone to her thoughts. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.